Sometimes you might need a pick-me-up, a push in the right direction, some words that help put you back on track. This is the Learn, Develop, Live podcast with your motivational moments. Welcome to the Learn, Develop, Live podcast and your motivational moments. My name is still Chris Jags and I hope whatever you're doing this week, you are smashing it. Whatever you're chasing, keep moving forward. Keep getting after that goal of yours. In the episode, we have actress Natalie Portman with her journey through Harvard University at her Harvard address. Whatever you're trying to do, it can be achieved even when you doubt your own ability. Here is Natalie. So I have to admit that today, even 12 years after graduation, I'm still insecure about my own worthiness. I have to remind myself today, you are here for a reason. Today, I feel much like I did when I came to Harvard Yard as a freshman in 1999, when you guys were, to my continued shock and horror, still in kindergarten. I felt like there had been some mistake, that I wasn't smart enough to be in this company, and that every time I opened my mouth, I would have to prove I wasn't just a dumb actress. So I start with an apology. This won't be very funny. I'm not a comedian, and I didn't get a ghostwriter. But I am here to tell you today, Harvard is giving you all diplomas tomorrow. You are here for a reason. Sometimes your insecurities and your inexperience may lead you to to embrace other people's expectations, standards, or values. But you can harness that inexperience to carve out your own path, one that is free of the burden of knowing how things are supposed to be, a path that is defined by its own particular set of reasons. The other day, I went to an amusement park with my soon-to-be four-year-old son, and I watched him play arcade games. He was incredibly focused, throwing his ball at the target. Jewish mother that I am, I skipped 20 steps and was already imagining him as a major league player with what his, his aim and his arm and his concentration. But then I realized that when he won, he was playing to trade in his tickets for the crappy plastic toys. The prize was much more exciting than the game to get it. I, of course, wanted to urge him to take joy in the challenge of the game, the improvement upon practice, the satisfaction of doing something well, and even feeling the accomplishment when achieving the game's goals. But all of these aspects were shaded by the little 10-cent plastic men with sticky, stretchy blue arms that adhere to the walls. That, that was the prize. In a child's nature, we see many of our own innate tendencies. I saw myself in him, and perhaps you do too. Prizes serve as false idols everywhere. Prestige, wealth, fame, power. You will be exposed to many of these, if not all. Of course, part of why I was invited to come speak today, beyond my being a proud alum, is that I've accrued some very coveted toys in my life, including a not-so-plastic, not-so-crappy one, an Oscar. So we bump up against a common trope, I think, of the commencement address, people who have achieved a lot telling you that the fruits of achievement are not always to be trusted. But I think that contradiction can be reconciled and is in fact instructive. Achievement is wonderful when you know why you're doing it, and when you don't know, it can be a terrible trap. I went to a public high school on Long Island, Syosset High School. The girls I went to school with had Prada bags and flat ironed hair, and they spoke with an accent I, who had moved there at age nine from Connecticut, mimicked to fit in. Florida oranges, chocolate cherries. Since I'm ancient and the internet was just starting when I was in high school, people didn't really pay that much attention to the fact that I was an actress. I was known mainly at school for having a backpack bigger than I was and always having whiteout on my hands as I hated seeing anything crossed out in my notebooks. 
I was voted for my senior yearbook most likely to be a contestant on Jeopardy or Code for Nerdiest. When I got to Harvard just after the release of Star Wars Episode One, I knew I would be starting over in terms of how people viewed me. I feared people would assume I had gotten in just for being famous and that they would think I was not worthy of the intellectual rigor here. And they would not have been far from the truth. When I came here, I had never written a 10-page paper before. I'm not even sure I'd written a five-page paper. I was alarmed and intimidated by the calm eyes of fellow students who came here from Dalton or Exeter, who thought that compared to high school, the workload here was easy. I was completely overwhelmed and thought that reading a thousand pages a week was unimaginable, that writing a 50-page thesis was just something I could never do. I had no idea how to declare my intentions. I couldn't even articulate them to myself. I had been acting since I was 11, but I thought acting was too frivolous and certainly not meaningful. I came from a family of academics and was very concerned with being taken seriously. In contrast to my inability to declare myself, on my first day of orientation freshman year, five separate students introduced themselves to me by saying, I'm going to be president. Remember I told you that. <laughs> Their names, for the record, were Bernie Sanders, Mark Rubio, Ted Cruz, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton. <laughs> In all seriousness, I believed every one of them. Their bearing and self-confidence alone seemed proof of their prophecy, where I couldn't shake my self-doubt. I got in only because I was famous. This was how others saw me, it was how I saw myself. Driven by these insecurities, I decided that I was going to find something to do at Harvard that was serious and meaningful, that would change the world and make it a better place. At the age of 18, I had already been acting for seven years and assumed I'd find a more serious and profound path in college. So freshman fall, I decided to take neurobiology and advanced modern Hebrew literature because I was serious and intellectual. <laughs> Needless to say, I should have failed both. I got B's for your information, and to this day, every Sunday, I spurn a small effigy to the pagan gods of great inflation. <laughs> but as I was fighting my way through Aleph Bet Yehoshua in Hebrew and the different mechanisms of neural response, I saw friends around me writing papers on sailing and pop culture magazines and professors teaching classes on fairy tales and the Matrix. I realized that seriousness was its own kind of trophy and a dubious one. A pose I sought to counter some half-imagined argument about who I was. There was a reason I was an actor. I love what I do. And I saw from my peers and my mentors that that was not only an acceptable reason, it was the best reason. When I got to my graduation, sitting where you sit today, after four years of trying to get excited about something else, I admitted to myself that I couldn't wait to go back and make more films. I wanted to tell stories, to imagine the lives of others, and help others do the same. I had found, or perhaps reclaimed, my reason. You have a prize now, or at least you will tomorrow. The prize is a Harvard degree in your hand, but what is your reason behind it? My Harvard degree represents for me the curiosity and invention that were encouraged here, the friendships I've sustained, the way Professor Graham told me not to describe the way light hit a flower, but rather the shadow that the flower cast, the way Professor Scary talked about theater as a transformative religious force, how Professor Coslin showed how much of our visual cortex is activated just by imagining. Now granted, these things don't necessarily help me answer the most common questions I'm asked. What designer are you wearing? What's your fitness regime? Any makeup tips? But I have never since been embarrassed to myself ask what I might previously have thought was a stupid question. My Harvard degree and other awards are emblems of the experiences which led me to them, 
the wood paneled lecture halls, the colorful fall leaves, the hot vanilla at Toscaninis, reading great novels in overstuffed library chairs, running through dining halls screaming, ooh, ah, city step, city step, city step, city step. It's easy now to romanticize my time here, but I had some very difficult times here too. Some combination of being 19, dealing with my first heartbreak, taking birth control pills that have since been taken off the market for their depressive side effects, and spending too much time missing daylight during winter months led me to some pretty dark moments, particularly during sophomore year. There were several occasions I started crying in meetings with professors, overwhelmed with what I was supposed to pull off, when I could barely get myself out of bed in the morning. Moments when I took on the motto for my schoolwork, done, not good. If only I could finish my work, even if it took eating a jumbo pack of Sour Patch Kids to get me through a single 10-page paper, I felt that I had accomplished a great feat. I'd repeat to myself, done, not good. A couple of years ago, I went to Tokyo with my husband and I ate at the most remarkable sushi restaurant. I don't even eat fish, I'm vegan, so that tells you how good it was. Even with just vegetables, this sushi was the stuff you dream about. The restaurant had six seats. My husband and I marveled at how anyone could make rice so superior to all other rice. We wondered why they didn't make a bigger restaurant and be the most popular place in town. Our local friends explained to us that all the best restaurants in Tokyo are that small and do only one type of dish, sushi or tempura or teriyaki, because they want to do that thing well and beautifully. And it's not about quantity, it's about taking pleasure in the perfection and beauty of the particular. I'm still learning now that it's about good and maybe never done. That the joy and work ethic and virtuosity we bring to the particular can impart a singular type of enjoyment to those we give to and of course to ourselves. In my professional life, it also took me time to find my own reasons for doing my work. The first film I was in came out in 1994, again, appallingly, the year most of you were born. I was 13 years old upon the film's release, and I can still quote what the New York Times said about me verbatim. Ms. Portman poses better than she acts. The film had a universally tepid critical response and went on to bomb commercially. That film was called The Professional, or Leon, in Europe. And today, 20 years and 35 films later, it is still the film people approach me about the most to tell me how much they loved it, how much it moved them, how it's their favorite movie. I feel lucky that my first experience releasing a film was initially such a disaster by all standard measures. I learned early that my meaning had to be from the experience of making the film and the possibility of connecting with individuals rather than the foremost trophies of my industry, financial and critical success. And also that those initial reactions could be false predictors of your work's ultimate legacy. I started choosing only jobs I was passionate about and from which I knew I could glean meaningful experiences. This thoroughly confused everyone around me, agents, producers, and audiences alike. I made Goya's Ghosts, a foreign independent film, and studied art history visiting the Prado every day for four months as I read about Goya and the Spanish Inquisition. I made V for Vendetta, a studio action movie for which I learned everything I could about freedom fighters who in other eyes might be called terrorists, from Menachem Begin to the Weather Underground. I made Your Highness, a pothead comedy with Danny McBride, and laughed for three months straight. I was able to own my meaning and not have it be determined by box office receipts or prestige. By the time I got to making Black Swan, the experience was entirely my own. I felt immune to the worst things anyone could say or write about me and to whether an audience felt like going to see my movie or not. 
It was instructive for me to see that ballet dancers, for ballet dancers, once your technique gets to a certain level, the only thing that separates you from others is your quirks or even flaws. One ballerina was famous for how she turned slightly off balance. You can never be the best technically. Someone will always have a higher jump or a more beautiful line. The only thing you can be the best at is developing your own self. To quote one of my favorite thinkers, Abraham Joshua Heschel, to be or not to be is not the question. The vital question is how to be and how not to be. Thank you. I can't wait to see how you do all the beautiful things you will do. That video can be found on YouTube and is called Natalie Portman's Life Advice Will Leave You Speechless. One of the most eye-opening videos ever and is published by the Motivation Arc YouTube channel. Now, do you think you could possibly leave the podcast for review? Now, I want to make this whole thing even better. So knowing exactly what's working from your point of view would be amazing. Now, you can leave podcast reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere else that lets you really. Your reviews will help other people, other like-minded people like yourself, find this and be motivated. Now, I'll be back tomorrow with more. But until then, take care of yourself and I'll see you in the next one. This is the Learn, Develop, Live podcast. It's not just a podcast. It's a movement, but in a podcast kind of way. Thanks for listening. You can find more motivational moments at LearnDevelopLive.com. And we'll be back to inspire you again tomorrow.